Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And from time to time, we like to give a plug, a boost to people doing a charitable events. And so we're going to start off the program today with um, an interview with Tony, Chef Tony Verdream, who is the executive chef at the Pines Tavern in Gibsonia. But he's going to be talking about a special event to benefit children, giving them a taste of ordinary life. The event is in its third year, I believe, called the Gathering of Chefs, a farm-to-fork dinner. And here, by the way, is Tony to tell us all about it. Well, I had a, a, a stream of nostalgia hit me when I saw the name of Pines Tavern and realized that the, the chef, executive chef there now, is new to me. And I'm happy to, to meet and welcome Chef Tony Verdream. And you, were, you, you said you're in your third year at the uh, Pines Tavern? That's correct. Yeah, very, very wonderful memories of being there. I hadn't been for a while. We'll have to get out there. But the thing that really we're going to be talking about primarily today is I read the press release from an event called Gathering of Chefs Farm to Fork Dinner, um, orchestrated by the Bradley Center. I didn't know anything about the Bradley Center, but it sounded good and the mission sounded good. Tell us what is the Bradley Center and what is its mission? The uh, Bradley Center has uh, been around for quite a while and They've been taking children that have uh, may have been underprivileged or don't have the privilege of having great families. And the Bradley Center has been bringing in these children for many years now and providing them with a stability in their life that they might not be able to get from being out in open society. Yeah, I mean, my heart just thumped, thumped, thumped when I read some of the things that, that the money for this fundraising dinner the kids do. It's things that every child should be able to do, right? That's correct. And with that being said, I mean, the Bradley Center has been giving children an opportunity to do the things that I mean, as our government said, that no child should ever be left behind, but there's always cracks in the system, and the Bradley Center has been providing a resource for that crack in the system that has given the children the opportunity that they won't be left behind, and they'll be given every opportunity available to them to better themselves and uh, even reunite them with families if um, they have felt at that time that the families have not provided the best of circumstances for their child. Are these children that have been removed by children's services from their families? I, I believe this is um, children that have been neglected and also children that uh, their families have felt that their children may receive better ser- services elsewhere at that point in their childhood. Wow. And what What are some of the things they get to do? There's multiple activities to through their lifestyle, basically correct their lifestyle into providing a structure into their support system where they have multiple uh, activities for it and to help uh, educate them in basically the necessary ways of living. They wouldn't be able able to foster in maybe uh, on other uh, support systems. I mean, I just, it's really horrifying to think that these children maybe never had a birthday party. It, it is terrifying, and the Bradley Center has created an outlook for all of these children so that they can have that first birthday party or that seventh birthday party and feel at home and feel welcomed in a society that may not have welcomed them otherwise. 
Now, where does this farm-to-fork dinner take place? Farm-to-fork uh, dinner takes place at the um, Sorgo Hollows, which is located about five miles north of Evans City. Mm-hmm. And Evans, Evans City is about 24 miles north of the city of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me... And it, yeah, go ahead. And it's a great location for a dinner. Uh, not only are you part of the environment... But there's um, hay rides that they take you on where you can go through the cornfield. Uh, it's set next to a very nice pond. There's the water surrounding the uh, hay rides that they take you out on. And it's a great venue for this type of event. And it makes you feel a part of the Farm to Fork event that we're holding for everyone else. And it's not just about the food that you might be eating that's uh, prepared from vendors or sourced from people that are local to Evan City or city of Pittsburgh, but you're actually in the farm, and you're experiencing what people at Sorgo Hollows experience on a daily basis, where they might be pulling corn out of the ground, or they might be picking apples from the trees, or they might be cutting the grass around the ground. Now, I I think I read that uh, the the goat rodeo people, the people who who make the great goat Oh, the goat rodeo uh, from Allison Park. They're going to be contributing to the event. Yes, they are. Uh, last year, they were part of the event. Uh, not only were they part of the event, but there were other uh, uh, vendors that were there that were showcasing how to uh, use the goat rodeo products in uh, basically daily fashion. Yeah, well, they, they just did good at the uh, the Cheese Society annual conference. They won awards in that. Tell us who else is cooking. You have a number of, of important chefs donating their services. Well, actually, in, in all honesty, uh, I'm not very familiar with some of the other chefs that are, will be at the event. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I have a list of them yeah, in front of me. We have a list of them. Why, why don't you go ahead and do the list of them? Okay, there's uh, Martin Thomas. Um, you, you see the guy from the... From the uh, from the club. Oxford Athletic Club. Oh, from Oxford Center, right. Um, then we have um, Norman Hart from the uh, Culinary Arts Technical College. Um, Martin LaMarque from Scratch, which is a, a great kitchen. Then we have, um, oh, yeah, this Bill Rayson, is, he just won the... Um, He's just the Duke Hancock. He just won Pastry Chef of the Year from the uh, American Chef Federation. Then we have Annalie DiPaoli from Pie Bird Pastry. Sounds like they're going to have good sweets there. Amanda Wright from the A519 Chocolate. Uh, Lisa Brown from Mess Catering, which is part of the Bradley Center, I guess, or they service the Bradley Center. And Nick Geis from Swickley Heights Golf Club, and I've eaten there, and that's good, too. So um, is it going to be a very fancy venue? Or what was that again? What will you be doing? This year I am uh, following in the footsteps that I did last year. Uh, last year I did a uh, Morchetta, which is basically the ancient Italian festival of pork, and I featured it uh, roasted all together. I did a, a pork loin. Uh, wrapped around uh, pork sausage, both provided by uh, Toma Meat Market. And this year I'll be featuring pork once again. And I haven't disclosed all of the ingredients to (laughs) this festival. So I could leave something 
free to remember us by. <laughs> porchetta is great, one of our favorites. Peter loves porchetta. Yeah, it's really funny. We, we were in a small town in in Italy around around Easter time, and uh, there was a oh the, yes, the, I remember <laughs> the, the butcher the butcher shop had a had a whole pig a whole porchetta in the in the window. And Good Friday, which is needless to say. On Good Friday, we we went by the window on Easter Sunday. There was nothing left. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you join us down at the Pines Tavern every September, we do a whole pork porchetta where we take a 350-pound pig and we set it with uh, all the classics of house-made Italian sausage, uh, fennel, uh, the zest of oranges, lemons, uh, fennel, season it with uh, fresh herbs. We wrap it up, throw it on a uh, charcoal and wood fire grill, and let it cook for about eight hours. And we do a wine dinner around it. Oh, I mean, I, I, I must you, say that you better, you better tell Mike Novak to invite us. Yeah, Mike Novak puts on the best special dinners and wine dinners. I mean, it's, uh, I remember his his great production about the Titanic dinner, I and mean, he's oh. he's amazing. And you can join us this year. Uh, It's the third week of September. We'll be doing our annual pig roast in uh, Porchetta style fashion, just just like the ancient town of Umbria in Italy. Uh Now, tell us two things. One, uh, about the dinner, where do you get tickets? What is the website you, you go on, or how do you get tickets? For the Porchetta dinner? No, no, we're talking about the Gathering of Chefs, which is Sunday, September 16th, 5 to 8 p.m. at Sorville Hollow. And to get your tickets, you need to go on the website or, ph- or phone, right? Yes. Yeah, um, and those can be booked directly through the Bradley Center. Could you give us our, the um, Gathering of Chefs, plural, dot com, or call... 412-788-8219. So that's, that'll get you your tickets. Okay, now tell us about the Pines Tavern. Um, what is your website? Well, Pines Tavern is uh, pinestavern.com. It has a long history. I, mean, I know the history, but why don't you tell our listeners about it? Okay, so the Pines Tavern is located 18 miles north of the city of Pittsburgh in Pine Township, which is Allegheny County in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania. A little bit of history behind the Pines Tavern. Uh, In the earliest incarnation of the Pines Tavern, it was an after-work gathering place where local farmers mingled with staffs of three grand Gilded Age estates of uh, Pittsburgh. And Tony, actually, the the history of the Ponds Tavern is well worth reading on the website, um, and uh, it's it's fun to to go back there and see the old photos and imagine what it was like back in the day and see how up to date it is. And I'm sure we still have the extensive farm with ten thousand tomatoes or something, right? Uh, Thirty six. Uh, different varieties. <laughs> I love that, Gordon. <laughs> so, anyhow, so hopefully we'll get to see you in person for the uh, pig roast. Oh, uh, you'll definitely be able to see me down there. Uh, I'll be doing the 300-pound pig 
on uh, one day, and then the uh, next day we're going to actually keep the grill out there and do uh, suckling pigs. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that way, if, uh, for anybody that's not able to attend the actual wine dinner that we put out for that Friday night, they can come back on Saturday, and we'll have the uh, stuffed suckling pigs for that day. That's great. Yes, um, I love the suckling pig. And anyhow, it's going to be fun, and so is the dinner. Remember, listeners, go on the website to the Bradley Center and find out how you could get to the gathering of chefs. It's good meeting you, Tony. <laughs> Thank it you. Nice, it was my, nice meeting you as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm sure they're all going to have a great time out on the farm. And we're going to change the subject. So right after the break, we're going to be in a different direction altogether. So don't go away because you're going to want to listen to the next two people right after the break. So here we go with the break and then we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, if you are afraid of cooking fish, you're not in the minority. A lot of people are afraid of cooking fish. Uh, they don't know it. They're not experienced with it. But our next guest has a book out. This is Joe Guerrero who we're talking to. And his book is called Joe Knows Fish. And I'll tell you. This man knows this fish. This man, his whole life has been fish. <laughs> and you need this book. <laughs> Not only that, and, ba and back to back with that, we might we might say we have a lady with no seaweed. And yes. And what, what's her name? And her name is Susan Hand Shetterly, and she has a book. That's, it's almost poetic, actually, called Seaweed Chronicles. And uh, that's a subject I'm interested in. I hope you are, too. I wonder if she knows Joe. <laughs> I don't know. There you go. Uh, if, if she did, she'd probably call, call her book... What's her name? Susan. Susan No Seaweed. Yeah. It's a rhyme. It's a rhyme. It's a rhyme. Mm. <laughs> anyway, here's Joe who knows all about fish and Susan who knows all about seaweed. I wish that everybody had this book. Uh, I wish I had had it a long time ago or something even like it, but... Joe Guerrera, you have started a new, a whole new chapter on taking the intimidation out of cooking seafood, which is the subtitle of your book, which is called Joe Knows Fish. Um, you are the owner of Citarella Fine Foods. Um, you do a mail order from your website. Uh, yes, we do. Yeah, you do. You have um, you sell retail. You have uh, you sell wholesale to uh, restaurants. And you've been doing this. I think you said your first visit 
to the Fulton Fish Market, which is the fish market I knew uh, in New York, um, in which you just told me was moved 11 years ago, and since you were 10 years old. So I'm yes. assuming you know fish. <laughs> what, what I've done in the seafood business is I've made a vertical integration where at, with one of my companies we deal with all the boats and we get seafood directly and we sell it to different people, but also we also sell to my other company, which is seven gourmet stores throughout the metropolitan area. And um, we supply and we sell the finest seafood that you could ever get. So, so you have like real, what I would call real fish shops. Oh, I, I have a gourmet. Citarella is a, is a gourmet store. Citarella sells. I have a 40-foot seafood counter. I have a 40-foot meat counter. We oh, have okay, a tremendous right. produce. Produce. We have caviar, smoked fish, foie gras, all of that. Yeah, I don't know how I missed it. Where is it? There's three in Manhattan. Uh-huh, on the upper, one on the Upper West Side, one on the Upper East Side, one in Greenwich Village. And there's one in Southampton, one in Bridgehampton, one in East Hampton. Yeah. And there's one in Greenwich, Connecticut. I wonder if I've ever been in your East Hampton shop. I used to hang there when I lived in, uh, in the further up on the East Coast. You used to hang, used to hang in Bridgehampton just a few years, just a few, just a few years ago. East Hampton, yeah. <laughs> I suspect that Joe was probably just making his way in the fish business. Yeah, okay. Well, Joe, I must tell you, you win a prize for, and this is the first photograph I've ever seen of a crab shedding its shell, becoming a soft shell, which, like you, was one of my most favorite seafoods of the world. Well, the purpose, you know, I tried to make it very informative. Besides, uh, you know, I, I, there's some humorous parts in the book. You're funny. And, you are. And, but, but, what I, but what I really tried to do is to educate the people where what they would buy, what it looks like raw, because every recipe has a raw and a cooked. Yeah, you and do a section on crudo, which I think is great, as well as ceviche. Um, you know, my, my ceviche recipe is terrific. Um, it's very simple. All my friends love it. And, um, you know, it's a, you know, that's probably a recipe that requires a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. But all the cooking of the seafood, all, all you know, the chapters, I, if you notice in the, in the chapters, grill is the first one, yes. which, is the, which is the easiest to do. Yes. Like, just like people grill a burger or grill a steak. Yeah. So I chose to, put, to do grill first to, make, to, to, take, to take the intimidation out, to make them feel good. And then the, after grilling, then we have, we have baking and roasting. Then we have broiling. Then we have sauteing. Then we have poaching and steaming. Then we have frying. Then we have a toss with pasta. Yeah, and and then we have, uh, you know, whether it's uh, eating oysters raw or clams or stone crab claws or all, uh, or all the tartars and the ceviches, that's what we do next. So that's the order of, of um, how I decided to um, write the book because I started with, with the simplicity. This way people will feel comfortable in grilling. 
with, with really first. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I have, I have some certain rules that I live by. And, um, you know, you, you always have, should start with the freshest ingredients. Um, and not just, not just the seafood, but I mean using a really good olive oil, using a very good sea salt. So this is what, this is what I, um, this is what I believe. And, and, you know, it, it's all about educating the people. Yeah, well, there's some really good tips in here. Like, um, we, well, actually, unfortunately, he, he's dead now, but uh, John, John Riley was a good friend of ours. You know, did you know John Taylor Fish? It's foreign. No. Anyhow, he used to send us oysters all the time. And um, we did a big oyster wine tasting with him in Seattle. And uh, the first time anybody told me to chew the oyster, to chew the oyster. You mentioned that, uh-huh. too. I mean, you have little things like that that people don't know to look for it. They might overlook it. But it's very important to chew an oyster. Otherwise, you don't well, taste it. Of course. But not only that, you know, you can, you can go to restaurants now, and they have different kinds of oysters from, from all, all different parts of, of the country. And, and, and every oyster from different, whether it's from Maine, Rhode Island, of Massachusetts, wherever it would be, there are um, all the oysters. They have different salinities, yeah. and everyone will taste different. A little more salty, a little less salty, so on and so forth. But one of the things that I find that's quite odd is that you'll see people they put cocktail sauce on top. Oh yeah, you mentioned they, that. <laughs> they put cocktail sauce. They put lemon. They put mignonette vinegar. How could you possibly taste the fish right. when you do when you do that? So right. uh, you said the same with shrimp. That, that was another thing I liked. You said that um, whatever you eat is about um, the flavor and texture, and it's true also with seafood. I thought that was brilliant. Explain well, that. It's, well, you know, I, as I said in the book. People who eat filet mignon, they eat that because they like the texture. Someone who doesn't, who, who eats a porterhouse, they do it because of the, of the flavor. Right. So you have the same distinctions in seafood. I'll give you an example. If you have, if you have a shrimp, you know how a shrimp is crunchy when you bite into it. And when you have a piece of flounder, it's, the texture is softer. So it's all about texture. Uh, and flavor, as far as I'm concerned. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, too. Um, yeah, I got really hungry reading some of your recipes, too. You have tips, you have education involved here, but you also have some really good recipes, although you really you, you spend, um, you, you really advocate for very little added to the seafood, right? I do. Is the fish running away there, Joe? <laughs> you know, it sounded like the, the fish were breaking out. <laughs> well, you know, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I, I, I like all my, all my seafood um, not overdone, not well done. And, that, and when you cook seafood, you have to use a timer, not a thermometer. 
it's not it's not a pe- it's not a pe- it's, it's not a roast. It, and everything with seafood is by time. And in the book, you'll see if you want to grill a piece of tuna, if you want it rare, it's a minute or so on each side. If you want it medium, it's two minutes on each side. And if it's well done, it's three minutes on each side. But what's very important is the timing. And not, and you just have to pay attention for a couple of minutes because fish is very delicate and does not take long to cook. It's not like a pork chop or a piece of beef or chicken. And just you just you just have to pay attention. No, you're right. Anne showed me the picture in your book of yellowfin tuna cooked. And is that how Peter and, cooks and it? He said. Joe cooks it exactly like you do. And I said, well, of course he does. He knows how to do it the right way. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say I taught him. <laughs> I, I don't know where I got the idea, but it, it, must have been, it must have had it in a restaurant, and I thought it tasted really good done that way. You know, you know we just uh, were in Spain, and um, uh, I had... A real treat. I mean, I, I love this. It's the only place to get it. It's a very short uh, window um, of availability in Barcelona. It, they call it Espardenia. But you know what it is? It's sea cucumber. But oh, the, the sure. Spaniards only use a portion of it. We've never figured out what portion that is. Whereas if you get it in an Asian market, you get the whole thing. Yes, yes, yes. But they, they, they just take a portion of it and throw the rest it's, away. It's the digestive tract. I keep on trying to tell you. I don't understand that. How it's can what, it be the digestive it's, it's, tract? Whatever part of the sea cucumber consumes whatever it eats. Yeah. And it's inside the whole thing. And there's a fisherman off the coast of, of the Costa Brava throw, throw everything else away and keep the sea cucumber in it for themselves. And it's a, it's a, del- it's a delicacy and most people won't even... Have it on their menu, but you have, if you ask, uh, and, and uh, they're good friends of yours, they'll supply it to you. The, the, fish uh-huh. I, the fish I thought you were talking about was the fish we had. There was a, it was a whole turbo with with the row uh-huh. with the row inside still, and they cooked the whole thing over charcoal. Where was this? It was at that was at that restaurant we went to, way down way down near the bottom of Las Las Rambles. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, but it was absolutely terrific. That was great, yeah. Can you imagine a, a whole turbo enough to feed four people? And, <laughs> and, and, and two of us ate it. <laughs> and the other thing that you never see, uh, I mean, you see, you have it in your book, but you never see razor clams anywhere if you're not on the shore. Uh-huh. I, I love them. Razor clams are one of my favorites. Yeah, I love them too. And then we used to have a. Uh, I grew with you that, the, that agree with you that the Portuguese sardines are the best in the world. Oh, we, they are. Yeah, no, we used no, to. No, no doubt about it. Yeah, we used to have an annual sardine roast with a, a couple of Portuguese chefs, and they uh-huh. used to drive to uh, what's the name of the town in New Jersey that's all Portugal Portuguese. Jersey City, um, Jersey City, I think, isn't it? Jersey City, I think, or Newark. I think, it, I think it's Jersey, Jersey City. City. I think, yeah. yeah. All, 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 all the restaurants downtown are Portuguese. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, I just recently had wonderful soft shell crabs. 
nothing done to them, salt, pepper, and sautéed. That's it. <laughs> and hopefully we're having the same tomorrow night. Yeah, I hope so, too. I love them. We're going to a local uh, seafood store. It's also a restaurant who gets a shipment in every day. He actually, he actually gets it usually on a truck. Because, oh, really? Because, well, well the, tr- the truck's headed to Ohio and Indiana and beyond. Just happened to come close to Pittsburgh. I see. So, so he's got he's got someone who's buy buying at the fish market in New York and then transporting it by by truck. I see. Because, because so I, I, guess, I guess so because it's less expensive than flying it. They, so they could be my customer then. They, they could be. Pro, 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 probably are. Interesting. Yeah, and the other thing, you you have a recipe for skate. Nobody cooks skate well anymore. I I don't know. I I've been really disappointed. I, I, cook, I cook it well. Well, you yeah, but I, you I, have to get it first. I, I have Rick Stein's recipe for it. Oh. <laughs> um, well, you know, a lot of people. I'm, I'm trying to. I agree with you. We we were in East Hampton once, and we bought a four-pound lobster. Uh-huh. And, and um, we actually had it walking around like a pet. <laughs> and it was tough as anything. It was not good. It was overcooked. Uh-huh. Probably, that's probably, that's probably exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was overcooked. But I like, you know, I I like two-pound lobsters. I, no, nothing bigger than that. Right. I agree. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Okay. But you like chicken lobsters, one and a quarter pound. Chicken or one pound? Yeah, oh, then what's this one? One and a quarter pound. That, those are one and a quarter, correct. Okay, give me a timing because um, you know that guy on um, Serious Eats who does all the food science? Uh, he, he gave us the timing for my soft boiled eggs, and, and they, they work every time. But I, I don't, we tried the lobster. What did he say we cooked this lobster for? I think it was four minutes. It, was, it was terribly undercooked. It was undercooked, okay. Yes. So what do you say, Joe? I, in the book, a pound and a quarter lobster, I steam it for eight minutes in a, in a, in a, in a, in a frying pan, and that's it, with, with the cover on it, with, with the, like a quarter of inch of water for about eight minutes. Well, now, do, you, do you kill it before you put it in? Excuse me? Do you kill it before you put it in? Absolutely not. Did you read that that Gourmet Magazine article about the consider the lobster? No, I did not. I've had a hard no, time dealing with lobster since then because basically he said that the lobsters, according and according to all that he's read, actually do feel. They have two nervous systems. So, I mean, I still plunge mine head first. And she says, good- no. and she says goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> she's, very, she's very thoughtful. So, well, I mean, people come up with all these things, like putting them in the freezers, so they're logy, and doing all that. Are you kidding? I had, I had customers that put them in a bathtub. Oh, God, that happened to me. This is ridiculous. I was visiting friends in Indianapolis. And as a celebration, they ordered these lobsters for me, and they put them in a bathtub with chlorinated water. They were all dead when I got there. 
<laughs> of course. It's fresh water. It's not soft water. I know. <laughs> and it was chlorine in it, no less. <laughs> I had a customer that did that, and she wanted a refund. <laughs> <laughs> And you, and, you, and you gave her one, of course. Right? <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> so you just take this lobster and you cut its, the, the constraints off its claws and, yes. you, and you put it in a quarter inch of water and it doesn't beat on the pot lid or anything? No, no, no. I don't take the restraints off. I, I, leave, them, I leave them on. Okay. And I, 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 and I put it in the, in, in, in the frying pan with, or a deep frying pan with a cover. So they, can't, and, uh, so they can't get out, huh? No, it's never going to get out. <laughs> and the cover's on, and in eight minutes, we're done. <laughs> there we go. What, 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 are some of, what are some of your interesting fishes? I mean, ones that people might sort of turn up their nose at if they didn't know better. Like, like skate, for example. Skate probably fits in that category. But what are, what well, are, what are some of the I'm other gonna tell you, I'll tell you a funny story about skate. Go ahead. So... My photographer, who we became very good friends, my photographer <clears throat> um, told me when we were photographing skate, he said, I hate skate. And I looked at him, I said, Bill, I said, are you serious? We've been together for a long time, and you eat everything, and you like everything. He goes, I hate skate. I said, Bill? You are falling into the category of people that don't understand. Because, and I'm going to tell you, maybe you had overcooked skate, or maybe the skate wasn't fresh. So, he photographed the skate that, that's in the book. And when, after that, he ate it. And he, he said, he yeah, said, I love skate. <laughs> you, cook, you cooked it for him, right? He, of course. He yeah. said, I, I cooked everything in, in, in that book. And he said, I can't believe. I said, Bill, but I got to tell you. I said, that's most, if I hear people, and I say this in the book humorously. I said, if people say I don't like cod or I don't like halibut or I don't like this, don't, listen, those fish are very mild. And for you to say you don't like it, that means that you either had it overcooked or it wasn't fresh to start with. Yeah. I said, it, it can't be anything else. And uh, I make a note of that in the book. And, um, you know, but this is, again, another premise of the book to educate um, people how to buy it, trust your fishmonger. Um, and, I, again, every recipe has what the raw product that you should buy looks like and what it finishes what it looks like after the product is, 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 is after it's cooked so um, again I, I try to be as informative as possible I show you the difference between a male and a female lobster yeah I, I show saw you the that. difference between There's a crab male and a, and a female crab you saw the soft shell crabs uh, shedding yeah I love and that all the, yeah all my suppliers you know I've been doing this for a very long time Yes. And Joe, there's one thing in here. Are you being truthful when you say that if we need to or want to, uh, just let you know and you will fly out and cook for us? Yeah. <laughs> oh, is he going to do that? He's going to do that. 
I hope he's gonna, I, hope I he's would gonna, do it. I hope he's going <laughs> to bring the fish along. Yes. <laughs> I would definitely do it. Uh-oh. No problem. Well, come with lobster. We have a tradition in my family that by age five, you should have your own whole lobster, you know. And um, my grandchildren, one's 11 and the other one's nine, and they've never had their whole lobsters themselves. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well. I my kids. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something grandma and granddad are supposed to provide, like everything else. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, yeah. I have a similar scenario because my grandkids don't like fish either. <laughs> and, it's par- and it's the parents' fault. Yeah. No, my kids, the the kids like fish. They just don't get lobsters. I mean, uh-huh. there, there, there's a limit to the there's a limit to the kitchen budget around here. Yeah. So, well, Joe Guerrera. Uh, Citarella. Um, the book, listeners, is Joe Knows Fish. And I mean, and you, the, you will feel so empowered about cooking fish if you read this book. And what's the website? Yes. The, the website is, is Citarella.com. Can you spell all those letters? C I T A R E L L A dot com. Great. Well, go, go there, listeners. I'm going to go check it out real soon. And uh, it sounds to me like you should too. And and they'll probably put a book in the fish carton for you just because they're nice guys. <laughs> and the book is available next week at Barnes & Noble. Uh-huh. And the book is available at Amazon.com. And it's also available at Citarella.com. I'm surprised about that. <laughs> Joe, thank, thank you so much for joining us and share, sharing your story and... Uh, the, the 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 way to succeed with fish, which is a very important lesson to learn in the kitchen. Thank you very much. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. Susan Hand Shetterly has written a, an engrossing book called Seaweed Chronicles, although that may not be a title to grab most everybody, but I happen to be fascinated by it. And the subtitle is also um, A World at the Water's Edge. And I, I should tell you that I've been reading this book, Susan. Um, since Pittsburgh is not on an ocean, <laughs> I've been reading it at our pool, our local pool, just <laughs> on by water. <laughs> now, uh, give our listeners your background information. Uh, well, I have lived on the coast of Maine for a long time. I moved here um, after I married, and um, we raised two children in a cabin ne- by near the ocean with no electricity. Oh, wow. We were, <laughs> it, we did that for 10 years, and the first five years were wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, I learned so much living there. It was a cabin in the woods um, by a, a working harbor. And um, the people I got to know at the harbor had learned things very differently than I had. I had learned things through books, um, very academically. 
and they had learned things through experience and paying attention. And so uh, it was wonderful for me. Well, I, I think it's a gorgeous part of, the, of our country and of the universe, yeah. actually. Um, all those outer islands, I love it. I really love it. Um, yes, me too. As, as we talked before we started the, the interview, um, I've been fascinated with seaweed for quite a long time, and I come at it from an angle of food, something to eat, and something that is healthy. And we have a different take on it, but the, the thing that uh, had me most surprised in the book is that the question of how healthy it is for human consumption is not a straightforward question. That's true. So what is the status? But here's how I would I would say it if if you don't mind me kind of recasting it a little bit. I welcome it. Absolutely welcome. Um, is that at this point we are still finding out an awful lot about seaweed. And right at this point now there are some questions we have about some species of seaweeds. But the thing is, we need a lot more people who are psychologists, which, which means seaweed scientists, and a lot more studies about seaweed. Because here are the basic things that we know. For instance, let's take the Japanese. They eat a lot of seaweed. And um, they eat some seaweed that has quite a bit of arsenic. Yeah, you, I read no. that. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, arsenic, I read that, that they have an adaptation to all this arsenic, which is found in wakame, right? Well, it works like this. The first thing about the seaweeds that have arsenic is that they do soak it um, before they use it. Probably soaks away some of the arsenic. So the, the, the scientists who are testing the arsenic probably, I mean the seaweed, probably don't soak it before they test it. But here's, here's the interesting thing. Over hundreds and hundreds of years, the Japanese have um, introduced into their diet not only sea, some species of seaweeds that have arsenic. They don't all have it by any means. And they have introduced tofu and a lot of um, vegetables in the cabbage family. Now, tofu inhibits the absorption of arsenic in your system. And oh, so do the cabbage family vegetables. And so, even though they eat a high amount, their diet has evolved so beautifully, um, they actually protect themselves. So they're getting the good things from the seaweed and, in a sense, um, having some kind of effect against the bat the bad things. The other thing about them is that they have, because um, they have passed down the tradition of eating seaweeds, they have flora in their gut, gut flora. Yes, I believe in that very seaweeds better than I believe in this gut flora. I think it's, it's going to be a key to a lot of our diet in the future. I think you're right. Yeah, and, uh, I don't get me started on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but they can they can digest some of the uh, parts of seaweed that um, people in, for instance, the United States have trouble with. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what what people in the United States have trouble with. 
that you started one of your interests is this global phenomenon, and and you mentioned Japan. Are there other world global situations that you'd like to refer to vis-a-vis seaweed? Well, I think all of it is pretty interesting. I mean, my background is part English and part Irish, so I had a wonderful time researching the Irish relationship with seaweed. That's a great story. Tell us about that. Tell us about that type of forming. Oh, well, um, one of my favorite books is Sings um, Aran Islands, and and my family comes from County Mayo, and they're both, of course, right up against the water, and they have a lot of ledge. So, oh, um, and these two places, the Aran Islands and County Mayo, and of course a lot of places on the coast of Ireland, are, are very ledgy. So what the farmers did in the olden days, and now they're doing it again, is they want to grow good potatoes. So they take seaweed, they take a little bit of sand from the beach, they mix it as if it were gold, and they plant the seaweed in it. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, the potatoes in it. We They make these, um, they cut the potatoes, so each slice of potato has an eye, yeah. and they set them in the seaweed and sand mixture, and they cover it with more of that mixture, and then they have to make gullies along the side because it rains so much, and they don't want the potatoes to rot, and they really grow <laughs> wonderful potatoes, yeah. and they're beginning to do it again. Well, that's great. We're, we may be there. For, we, get, we like Ireland, by the way. Lots. And we like all the chefs there. You, you were talking about the island uh, and the sheep grazing in Maine and um, about how I, I just kept thinking about what's the name of that potato rabbit? Jersey Royals. Jo- Jersey Royals that uh, grows in the um, Irish Channel, one of the Irish, Jersey. They grow in the English Channel. In the, I'm sorry, the English Channel Island of Jersey. And, and they have salt water and salt air exposure and they have a very short growing season but they're fabulous and when you were talking to me about these sheep I'm imagining the, the meat of the lambs being just absolutely fabulous is it different flavored? Right, they call them salt water lambs I love it because they do have a, f- a flavor that um, some people find especially delicious Yes, but the interesting thing is that you see, when I started this book, I wanted people to read it who didn't necessarily know very much about seaweed or weren't particularly fond of eating it, but just to learn about the world of seaweed. So I wanted to draw them in slowly. (laughs) And I thought one way to do that is to start with people like this wonderful woman, Donna Cowson, who's a shepherd, and she has has her sheep out on flat island and they stay there all winter, all summer and um, and how she works that and how her sheep are so healthy and they eat kelp and that really is the basis of their diet out there. And they can't run away. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can't run away. <laughs> when you approached this whole thing, you said you had three points of view of this book. Um, and 
the one is the global picture, and what was number two? Well, I suppose I feel that it's very important that people know, especially if they're going to eat seaweed, something about the relationship that seaweed has with ocean lives. And I think that just thinking it's something there for the taking that nobody else wants is incorrect. Right. Well, I was getting worried reading the book that just as we've depleted the oceans of fish and shellfish, that they might just start randomly cutting off seaweed and depleting that, even though it's a fast grower and it's viewed as very sustainable as a food source. Um, what's to keep people from overdoing it? What's uh, well, What um, monitors it? Nothing. Well, here's the thing. Um, I know that in Nova Scotia, I didn't write about this, but in I may have said a sentence about it. I can't remember if I left it in or took it out. But in Nova Scotia, they went through a period of over-harvesting, and they noticed that. I mean, the rocks were bare. And so they had instituted very, very strict guidelines, which they're using now. And it's okay now. But in Maine, we never were terribly interested in seaweed. And it's a new thing. So we're starting off brand new. And even though we've depleted so many fisheries in the Gulf of Maine, and we've been very good at plunder, we haven't plundered wild seaweeds yet. And so um, all of us in Maine want regulations, even the people who are doing the harvesting. And we're going to get them, you know, and and we'll see how they work. And if they don't work well, well, uh, we've learned enough, I think, about our ability to harm things that will do better, will self-correct. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is there's so many citizens who live by the ocean who are paying attention to seaweed that it's not going to go too far off track. But I believe that the future is aquaculture and growing seaweeds in a fresh, clean, cold, open base like we have. That's another issue is the pollution, especially destructive with the plastic in the seas. I mean, those images of all that plastic floating around in the oceans is so disgusting. It's very disgusting. What I like is that they're developing new plastics now, and they're trying to use corn, and sometimes they're using actually seaweed to see if they can make... um, some kind of, uh, using the gel and seaweed, if they can make some kind of form mixed with other things that that will disintegrate in the ocean. And I think it would be great if it's made out of seaweed, and then it goes back to where it came from. Right. Now, you you mentioned, um, we're talking a lot about seaweed as a food source, but you mentioned uh, how many ways it's used, how many things it, it makes. Right. We use it in a lot of um, prepared foods. I mean, in other words, if you go buy a box of something rather than just rice or something like that, that um, seaweed will could very easily be in processed foods that you buy. And such as yogurt or soy milk, tofu, cottage cheese. It's in makeup, pet food. Yes, right. 
yeah. soil amendments. What interests me is that a certain kind of gel from a certain species of seaweed is used in Petri dishes for laboratory tissue cultures. And also another kind is used in wound dressing, especially in burns. They're, they're very comforting and healing for burns. And it's also used in fracking, believe it or not, oh, well, because that gel keeps all that machinery going. Oh, wow. So the good and the bad. Yeah. The other threat that you describe in your book is the, um, how did we describe it? They're sort of like the industrial complex, except as, as it relates to seaweed. And, and then you build this story around a number of really interesting characters. And we, we mentioned uh, Larch, our mutual uh, acquaintance here. And uh, there are people like Large. He views this whole thing as related to like a Zen life experience, really. And uh, right. and there are others like him that are going to lobby for keeping everything small. But how big a risk is it that it will get eaten up by the large mass producers? Well, you know, um, all I can say quite honestly is I don't know. And even though I bring it up in my book and I try to um, show you the people who are working for to support the communities who, that live along the coast who, that don't have their fisheries anymore. Yes. So those communities, to me, are very important. Whether they can be pushed aside by big industry, I don't know. But um, here are two things to think about. One is when the Canadian and I wrote about that in my book, came down from uh, New Brunswick into Washington County in Maine and began harvesting. The citizens around the shore um, went to the, the government and asked for more protections, and they were actually given more protections. Right. The other thing is the federal government, this is so fascinating, has given a 1.3 million dollar grant to the University of Southern Maine to try to design a sugar kelp uh, platform, they call it, out in federal waters, that's three miles offshore, where they would grow the kelps in the winter. Oh, you wow. can imagine the storms there. And those platforms would probably be as big as a Walmart. Wow. So... Uh, and I was interviewing this wonderful man who had received the grant, and, you know, they were ecstatic about studying how this could be done. And I said, well, what do we have to worry about? And he said, what I'm worrying about is, A, how to anchor it, and B, whether sugar kelps really can be grown way out at sea. Mm -hmm. He said, that's all I can worry about right now. And it's mostly on the computer I'm doing this work now. It's far in the future, but, of course, not too far. Well, Susan, I mean, I think that this is endlessly fascinating on the material in this book. And I, even if people are skeptical about whether they would be engaged with um, the kind of ecosystems you're talking about, I think they'd be amazed to find out how fascinating it is. Um, again, this is Susan Hand Shetterly. It's called Seaweed Chronicles, a 
world at the water's edge. And if you don't believe that this is a page turner, <laughs> you've missed the point of this book. <laughs> so change your practices and reading habits and get a hold of this book. And thank you for doing all this research, Susan, and it was a delight to find out that somebody's really caring for seaweed. Well, it's delightful to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Susan. Okay, so now you know about fish and now you know about seaweed. Must must be time to wait until next week for a whole new On the Menu program. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime... Bye-bye.